Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu, and you're listening to Chronicles and Commons. I've been playing Starfinder a lot lately, so I've been kind of looking with interest at some of the common science fiction stuff out there, and what better common sci-fi story to start with than two books by Philip Francis Nolan. The first is called Armageddon 2419, and the second called Air Lords of Han. You may or may not recognize these titles as pioneering science fiction works, which were later adapted into a kind of mini-series, they called them serials, S-E-R-I-A-L-S, by the name of Buck Rogers. If you haven't heard that, you, you can find it mentioned a lot of times as the, the inspiration for a lot of the sci-fi that you most certainly have heard of. Most famously, I think, would be Star Wars. Star Wars is often cited as borrowing heavily from Buck Rogers, not just in in format, being a serialized story, but also in story themes and storytelling technique. I don't know if I would have identified this these books with Star Wars uh, as an inspiration to Star Wars without knowing that that's already been said about them, but knowing it, I can definitely see similarities here and there, but then again, you can find similarities across different stories if you look for them hard enough, no matter what. So these two books by Philip Francis Nolan back in the 1920s or so is not about anyone named Buck, first of all. It's about Anthony Rogers, who, if anyone calls him anything, they call him Tony. And at the time of writing this book, he is an old man who happens to be living far in our future. It's not clear how his recollections of his past, which is still our future, got back to us. But that's the setup. He's an old man. His wife has has passed on. The war is over. A great war is over. Every the the, the empire has been crushed, and he's re, he's he's retelling this story as a as a history of of the early part of the 25th century. Of course, he didn't start out in the 25th century. He started in the 19 20s. Well, he was born, I think, in the 1890s, specifically. And in the 1920s, after World War I, he was working in some mines, in some coal mines, near in the, uh, the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania. I've not heard of the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania, and it wasn't until I reread this book recently that I realized that it was set in, actually, Pennsylvania, because it always it, it did confuse me when I first read it that he kept talking about Wyoming, but then the main plot, the, the main action of the stories of these two books, happened in New York and and that region. So it was very confusing to me why they kept jumping from Wyoming to New York and treating it like it was it was sort of in the same neighborhood. And I just assumed that the territories had changed or something. But, but anyway, it's, it's actually set in the, the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania. And he, he is working in some coal mines, investigating 
some traces of carnitite, which I don't know if it's a real thing, I didn't actually look it up, but it's apparently a hydrovanadite of uranium and other metals used as a source of radium compounds. So radioactive stuff, and he's looking for a source of, of, of these things, because he works for the American Radioactive Gas Corporation. So while he's investigating these, these traces of, of, some, of some mineral or, or gaseous mineral that he's looking for, there is an avalanche, a cave-in, traps him underground. He attempts to find a way out. He's not able to find a way out. Air is getting thin. He assumes he's a goner. He, f- he, he falls unconscious. But the next thing he knows, he's waking up. Still underground, but not dead. He's awake. He's conscious. It turns out that, that at some point during his unconsciousness, some, some air has been let through. Some, some shifting in, in the rocks has happened na- just naturally and let air through. And so he wakes up, digs his way out of his tomb, and comes to the surface. As you may have guessed, whilst he was unconscious underground, in amidst nothing but radioactive gases, 500 years passed. And so when he awakens, he's actually in the year 2419. It doesn't take him too long to realize this because he encounters some people doing some space-age things. But during that time, a lot of history occurs. And that history is pretty important to the story. And it makes for a pretty interesting angle from a, I guess, a folklore or story-building or world-building perspective. Before I get into that, though... I want to just mention how elegant I feel this method of, well, time travel happens to be. I'm sure that there are equivalents to this elsewhere that I'm not thinking of right now. I mean, the obvious one, I guess, is Rip Van Winkle. But just in terms of modern storytelling, especially in sci-fi, I feel like a lot of times there's a lot of work done to get someone from one time to another. And sometimes I just can't help but feel like all of that effort wasn't really worth the mechanic of we need to get this person from here to there. Not always. Sometimes it's it's well done, but but a lot of times it just feels like there's a there's a lot of storytelling and a lot of bending over backwards and a lot of requesting people to suspend disbelief just to get a character from their native time to some other time just on the auspices of having a fish-out-of-water story, where maybe that's not even a requirement to the story being told. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if that's the story that someone wants to tell, then great. And fish-out-of-water stories are, are fun. They are objectively fun. People love those things. I love those things. But both in, in story writing and in story telling, or, or play acting, like in an RPG... I feel like sometimes it's just not worth the preamble. Admittedly, this book, the the 2419 Armageddon 2419, it does use the old the, the now old trope of ascribe it to radiation. That's a little bit clunky at least in retrospect. We've seen a lot of that from Godzilla to Spider-Man to everything else. We've definitely had radiation be the answer to any kind of magical event required in the modern day. On the other hand, 
It's such a simple way of doing it. He falls asleep. Some unknown gas underground preserves him until fresh air breaks through and awakens him. And now he's 500 years into the future. I just thought that was really nicely done. And it, it honestly takes a lot less to do it than it is taking me to, to praise it. So that's how elegant it is. Alright, so when he wakes up, he is in the 25th century, in, in the year 2419. And the most important thing to, I guess, understand is the history of, of, how, of how the rest of the world got to where he is now. At the time of the writing of these books, the First World War was in the past, but the Second World War had not yet happened. So, in this work of fiction, the author has another wor war following the First World War, which I'm sure seemed absolutely preposterous at the time, and sadly was not as at all preposterous. But there was this other war in which nearly all European nations banded together to break the financial and industrial power of America. They succeeded in their purpose, uh, but they were beaten because the war was a particularly great and terrible one. And while the European nations failed, lost the war, it still happened to leave America in a weakened state. This opportunity was seized by the Russian Soviets, who had made a coalition with China, to sweep over all of Europe and reduce it into a state of chaos. Surprisingly, shortly thereafter, China defeated Russia and then set about defeating America, which it did in about 2109. This established the Han Dynasty in America, which became essentially a province in their world empire. And those were dark days for the Americans. They were hunted like wild beasts by the Chinese, only those who survived found refuge in mountains, canyons, and forests. Government was at an end. Among them, anarchy prevailed for several generations. Most would have been eager to sub submit to the Hans, even if it meant slavery, but the Hans didn't want them, uh, for they themselves had marvelous machinery and scientific processes by which all difficult labor was accomplished. So they, didn't, they had no use for the, 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 the American savages as they saw them. At first, they searched for the Americans and tried to wipe them out, which was pretty swift going because they had invented a super weapon called a disintegrator ray, which does exactly what it sounds like. It's a ray that disintegrates whatever it touches. The Americans learned pretty quickly that if they, would, if, if they left the cities and just hung out in the wilderness... They were, they were more or less pretty safe. Over the course of a couple of decades, the leftover American people started building up sort of a new civilization, albeit tribal and in the outlands. Families and individuals gather together in what they call gangs. G-A-N-G-S. Gangs. It's not actually like a gang, but that's what they call it. They, they call it a gang. They eventually start to settle down into specific regions. They, they, they pick up on the fact that the Hans no longer care about them. They no longer see them as a threat, so they don't even bother hunting them anymore. And so it, that lets the, Ameri the, the remnants of America settle down into different regions that they find safe and that can, they can develop. 
And so they start living. They, they go back to normal life, more or less. I'm assuming they used the, the bits and pieces of their former civilization. Although maybe not. Maybe, maybe too much of it was disintegrated, so they have to start from scratch. But they do start over. They, they, they spend a lot of effort toward redevelopment of science, of technology. They start tapping into the Han radio communication... And they start to rebuild. But again, very much, not literally, but, but figuratively underground. They, they are doing this under the constant threat of being attacked by a Han air raid. Because even though the Han dynasty doesn't see these, these tribal groups as a threat, if they're making it obvious, then it, it's just too easy to go and wipe them out. And the Han dynasty is very much about that. They... They would rather the Americans not exist at all. When this book starts, or when it really kicks off, that is when when Tony a awakens in 2419, that's where everything stands, is that the Americans have formed a kind of Armageddon utopia, or I guess you could even say post-apocalyptic utopia, and the Hans have ascended into superiority in terms of technology and in terms of control, but descended in terms of of social of social uh, health. So the Han Dynasty, and we'll talk about this in a little while later, but but their society is very much one of luxury and wealth and excess, and it is portrayed as a as a waning society. And it may as well, right? Because it's had it's had four hundred years to to develop at the, at that point. It's it's a four hundred year old civilization that has that's taken over the entire planet Earth. It's probably expected that it would be showing its age by now. But before we get into the sociology of the of the two reigning civilizations, let's talk a little bit about technology because that does define them in in a lot of ways especially in, in what is a science fiction story. So let's talk about American science first, because it's the one that we are exposed to initially when Anthony Rogers awakens. The two discoveries that Americans make that sort of is a game-changer for, for, for everything are two kinds of materials. One is called inertron, and the other is called ultron. Inertron is... Inert. It is a hundred percent inert in basically every way. It's just discovered before Tony, not just, but I mean, a couple of years before Tony Rogers awakens, this is discovered. So it's it's quite a new element by the time he when he awakens. It is it is not it is not very common. It has not been reverse engineered certainly by the Hans. It is a, a distinct American discovery when he awakens and it is just coming into common use. It's a synthetic element built through complicated heterodyning of ultronic pulsations and infrabalanced sub-ionic forms. That's straight out of the book. It has no meaning to me. All I know is that it's really, really good science babble. But it is completely inert of both electric and magnetic forces, meaning that it doesn't feel, for instance, cold to the touch, because it doesn't absorb the heat from your hand. It doesn't feel hot. It doesn't retain heat. It reflects 100% of the heat 
and light impinging upon it. It's solid, it's very dense, and yet it is also very, very light. And when I say very light, it is impossibly light in ways that I don't fully understand because it seems like if you made a neutron and it was so light that it had anti-gravitational properties, which it does, then it would just float away. But maybe they, they discovered that, and I guess you discover then that it is floating away on you, so you, you stop it from floating away. Or maybe at very small levels it doesn't float. Um, it might be inverse, because like the, the more of it that you have, the, the lighter it is. Because it is used in what are called jumpers. Jumpers are belts that people wear. They, they strap them high under their arms. So I think they're kind of shoulder straps almost uh, from, from some of the illustrations in the, the original stories. And they contain an amount of inertron adjusted to the wearer's weight. Such that if you wear this, this belt that is specially weighted for you, then you yourself essentially will weigh, let's say, two pounds or a pound. You can jump around as if though you only weighed a pound. And that's what they do. They, they're, they're called jumpers. They, they, that's how they get around. Most of the American ground troops in this, in this story move around with jumpers, and, and it, it allows them to cover 60, 90, 120 feet at a time without even thinking about it. And they take no damage from the fall because they don't weigh a whole lot. That's been huge. That, that's changed the way that the ground-dwelling tribal Americans can move around. Based on this, this idea, they later develop floaters, which are basically rocket motors encased in inertron and strapped to a person's back. And so when they, they activate these, they can float around, being propelled by rockets, but completely shielded by inertron casing. So there's no heat, and they're, they're, they're made lightweight, so they probably don't need even a whole lot of uh, force anyway. And in this way, they can treat moving through air a lot like uh, diving underwater. They can kind of control themselves with their arms and their, just the, the pose of their body. They can move around. I want to emphasize here, just in case you have seen bits and pieces of the old Buck Rogers serial, that the jetpacks and things that they had in those movies bear no resemblance whatsoever to what was written about in the book. The book has all of this stuff very elegant, very natural, extensions of just natural movement. You don't put your hands high over your head and launch yourself into the sky in a straight line and then descend in a similar straight line after a cut. It is specifically quite a natural movement. I should also mention about Inertron that it is, while being dense and very lightweight, it is pretty pliable. It has elasticity to it. It is also the perfect shield against the disintegrator ray that the Han Dynasty has developed. The other element is Ultron. That's a series, it's a solid, rather, of great molecular density and moderate elasticity, which has the property of being 100% conductive. So, inertron is 100% inert. This is 100% conductive to everything. It's 100% conductive to light, electricity, heat, everything. There's apparently no resistance. Again, not 100% sure how that works, but maybe if you make it an, an alloy with something else, maybe it prevents the whole thing from completely overheating or something. I'm not sure. Since it's completely permeable to light vibrations, it is absolutely invisible and non-reflective. Its magnetic 
response is almost but not quite 100% also. It is therefore very heavy under normal conditions, but extremely responsive to the repeller or anti-gravity rays, such as the Hans use as legs for their airship. If you've ever heard anyone say that, that Buck Rogers famously predicted a bunch of modern-day technology, they're not exaggerating. If I knew more about the 1920s and what was going on then in, in the technical and scientific industry, maybe I would know more about just how revolutionary some of these ideas were. I mean, I feel like a lot of us today can predict more or less the future of technology simply by taking current things and then extending them to impossible extremes. And so I wonder if that's what the author did here, because he does seem to base a lot of his ideas on more or less existing technology, but some of it is just... It, it's, it does, if, if you let your guard down, it is uncanny sometimes. Because they have these perfect materials, Ultron and Inertron, they can kind of do whatever they want with technology. I mean, it's sort of the 1920s analogy of the integrated circuit. They can create technology that just doesn't make any sense with with the tools that they had. And he bases a lot of of the accomplishments. Like he 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 really leans on radio technology, which of course wasn't hadn't really been around all that long by the by the 20s. Radio technology has been understood and has been utilized for for quite some time. The crystal radio, which requires no power source whatsoever, and it's 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 essentially just a a wire and a capacitor, a coil of uh, of of copper wire and a tuner, and and of course the crystal itself. That was invented, I think, in the 1890s, and certainly it was used widely in the world in World War One for communications. So, for this author to have to have been up on on radio technology maybe he's maybe he had built a radio in his in his workshop who knows if he knew about that which he clearly did then to lean on that as the great explainer for all the magic in his world of technology wasn't completely surprising and i feel like it's it's a little bit of a cheat i mean we can all do that even so he goes to great length to explain some of these technological achievements. For instance, while describing what drives all the technology, he explains that the Americans have learned to split the atom into electrons, to manipulate an atom into component electrons, and then to even to, to split the electron further into the uh, ultronic and inertronic, I guess. I, no, I don't think inertronic, because I think that's synthetic. But the, the, the sub-particles, or the sub-elements of even an electron. And through this method, they were able to develop ultraphones and ultrascopes, which in their phonic and visual operation penetrate obstacles of material, electronic, and sub-electronic nature without let or hindrance, and with the consumption of but infinitesimal power. In other words, he is describing cell phones, and, and that is what they use to communicate, the Americans. They have these little things called ultraphones, based on these sub 
electronic technologies that the Americans have, have discovered, and they are able to send impossibly, I guess, high frequencies. I think he says that they are impossibly small radio waves that get compressed down into just impossibly small, small signals. And then they're shot through even material substances. So you can, you can go through or around mountains and trees and buildings and there, thereby communicate in, in over, over distances as if though you were standing right next to the person. Which, of course, back then would have been impossible because you just, you'd have to use a radio wave, which is subject to interference and it takes quite a lot of power at that time. Or if you go low power, then you're increasing the interference, and you're you're dampening the signal to where you can barely hear it. And the same goes for video as well. the The Han Dynasty has has ultra ultrason uh, ultrascopes rather, which can can receive video feeds from the the ground, and they and then they can zoom in on those video feeds, and it's all electronic. I mean, I'm sure there's a physical manifestation of the of the camera as it were but but most of it all happens electronically and that's how they're able to find americans so with such precision because they're they're flying high in the sky but they've got these ultrascopes that can see down on the ground as if though they're right there but because it's all based around ultronic uh, molecule or or you know the the substance ultron they can the, the scopes can actually view through opaque structures as well. They can go straight through solid objects because they're smaller than electrons. They can penetrate walls. They can look through forests easily. So it's it's a bit like a an X-ray, except it happens to be it has to be it it happens to be visual by the human eye. You can actually see what you are are looking through and and with perfect clarity. The development of these technologies, of the ultraphone and the ultrascopes, for the Americans, it ties the different gangs together. It creates an intergang network for official communication. This is really important because previous to these technologies, most of the gangs were not really in communication with one another, and even if they, if they were, there was a lot of tension between them. There was not the guarantee that they trusted each other or that they would work together. So sometimes not being in communication was better. But once the Hans start to reassess the value of letting Americans live, it becomes vital for the gangs to band it together, and band it together they do using technology. For weaponry, there are a couple of different tools that are in common use at this time. Interestingly, melee weapons are still a thing, so they, the, most people seem to carry swords, daggers, bayonets. There's a, there's a particularly ruthless one that, that Tony Rogers comes up with, which is a, a, an attachment for, I think, for a gun or something, that has a, a blade on one end and sort of a hook axe on the other, such that when he parries or, or when he when he thrusts with one end, if it is um, if it is parried, then he can just swing the weapon back around and gut the person with the hook on the end. It's pretty brutal. The book is actually a little bit more violent than you might expect for something from the 1920s. I mean, I don't know. It depends on your expectations, but it is 
it's it's kind of surprising sometimes. I I actually cringed a couple of times when uh, some of the some of the violence was was described. It's not terrible. I mean, it's not as bad as stuff we have today, but but it 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 does give you a little bit of a shock. In terms of handguns and the like, they generally it's they're firing bullets. That's that's what they're firing. Some of them are made lighter by inertron. But there's nothing really special about the the guns that they come up with. The Han Dynasty does apparently have heftier weaponry, almost submachine gun size guns that they carry around on them. And from what we can tell, those guns are meant to be mounted. So I don't know how large they are exactly, but I guess they're fairly unwieldy. They do carry them around, at least the, the officers within the Han Dynasty do. Uh, interestingly, they I, I don't recall them ever being used. So, it's really a, a melee-heavy environment, which is kind of nice. Um, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but in, in the sense of looking at Star Wars, or certainly on the RPG side of things, Starfinder, where... You've got weapons, maybe in Starfinder you even have magic, you're, you're throwing things at people that should, by all rights, by all physics, go right through them, poke a hole through them, but for some reason it doesn't. And of course in Starfinder it is because there is the energy field, the energy shields that you have to deflect laser blasts and things like that, or you've got armor to guard you against bullets and so on. And since it's established within this world, in the, within the world of Armageddon 2419, the substance Ultron is super, super strong. You can imagine that they could have easily come up with some armor made of Ultron that would deflect at least most or, or all, all bullets thrown at them. Maybe making hand-to-hand -hand combat so that you could get your, your melee weapon, you know, between, between the, the folds of armor in order to actually do damage that would be a requirement. They, they don't go into that kind of detail. A lot of times it just happens to be that when they are attacking someone, they're sneaking up on them, they're descending down from them from having jumped from to a great height, because remember, the Americans have Inertron so that they can, they can fight gravity a lot better than the, Han, the Hans can, because the Hans are bound to normal gravity. And so the, the, um, the gunnery really doesn't, doesn't seem to to come into play all that much. And it's kind of refreshing, generally, to find a fictional world that doesn't rely on on these blasts to to obliterate people. That it's it's a little bit a little bit more one-on-one -on -one than that, because I think once you start blasting people away, then you you just start fighting large hordes of people and and it's just all about crowd control. And that loses kind of that personal touch of violence and bloodletting. Obviously, in something like Star Wars, they answer this in two different ways. Number one, they've got Jedi Knights who can deflect your laser, your blaster bolts because of super strong, great reflexes. And then secondly, they just have all the stormtroopers shoot really, really, really poorly. And the blasts don't seem to do that much damage anyway. I mean, they seem to be a bludgeon kind of force because they push people back a lot and they do seem to disable people 
in some way, when Leia gets shot in her in her shoulder in Return of the Jedi, she's she's not down forever. She just loses the use of her arm for whenever you know whatever time is convenient. So they don't seem to be all that lethal, in spite of being presumably pure energy. In both cases, I think it's really good to take note of the fact that it's that one-on-one -on -one combat that brings the 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 audience, which sometimes is an RPG player and sometimes a reader or a, a viewer or whatever, it brings them into that into that correspondence, into that into that interaction. Those are the finer details of Armageddon 2419 and the Air Lords of Han, and a lot of it, unfortunately, is kind of passe at this point. Nothing I've talked about is anything that you haven't heard of or possibly carried around in your own pocket already. However, there may be something yet to learn from these two books, and that is from a, a very, very specifically a storytelling standpoint. The story of the Americans versus the Han Dynasty is a story told mostly in two parts. Those two parts are are each one part per book. Now, if we if we dig deeper, we can go into story beats and such, but I, I would rather not do that. So I'll, I'll kind of I'm going to use broad, broad strokes here. But in terms of building a story around some of the some of the ideas contained in this, you have a ragtag band of rebels who are not united. They are disjointed and and possibly even at each other's throats. In fact, one of the early problems that the Wyoming tribe, or the Wyoming gang, I should say, that Tony Rogers initially gets involved with is that they have been ratted out by a, 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 a competing tribe that just decided to, for their own benefit, tell the Hans about the Wyoming tribe and where their where they were located and how they could be destroyed simply so that they could they could get permission from the Hans to leech off of their radio network so they're betrayed in other words by by another group of Americans so that's that's an initial hurdle to get over the the next hurdle is is what happened to the Ameri the Wyoming gang. Their entire livelihood gets wiped out by the Han airships, which pass overhead, shooting disintegrator rays down onto the ground. Disintegrator rays do, as I said, exactly what they sound like. They're 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 ray guns essentially. They, they look sort of like uh, searchlights, except instead of reflecting light down onto the surface. It's it's projecting a disintegrator ray. The disintegrator ray renders into nothingness whatever it touches, including air. So it it actually it it causes air molecules to be destroyed when it when it moves through the sky. It hits the ground, it disintegrates trees, buildings, even even some of the ground. I don't know what makes it ever stop. I don't know what kind of range a disintegrator ray has or why it has that range, but but it does render you know it, it does cause the ground to to disintegrate when it passes over it. So it's it's utterly destructive and and very very effective. They pass over the American 
the, the Wyoming Valley a couple of times, rendering it completely um, uh, a wasteland. In 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 scenes that rival, uh, for instance, some of the initial dragon attacks in Dragonlance, if you're a reader of Dragonlance, there it's 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 quite it it's not quite as graphic, but it is it. It is terrific destruction that really makes you understand that that there is no defense against these things. So the Americans decide to start moving against the Han Dynasty with ground troops, which is insane because you can't fight airships with ground troops, except you do when you have to. So the Americans shoot rockets up into the sky to confuse the airships as to where... To, to where they actually are, you know, confuse, give them false targets. They they leap onto the airships and and bring them down manually to the ground. And the airships, understand, are basically star de- star destroyers. They're huge. They're big luxury liner airships that that they're decked out with with couches and chairs and view screens. The officers on the ship don't bother looking out the window, they don't bother standing up, they're just, they're, they're, they're sitting around with their tea and looking into view scopes, and they have people operating all of the, the different mechanics on the, on the ship. So it's, it's a huge luxury liner of destruction. So when one goes down, it's, it's big news. And the Americans managed to get, I think, a couple down, um, just, just using ground troops, and then I think they, if I'm recalling correctly, they steal one at one point as well, and so now they're in the air for a while. After that happens, after the, the Han Dynasty has noticed that the Americans are back and, and are a threat, they, they start to redouble their effort to destroy the Americans, which seems like really bad news. And and they they start using new tactics. They they send out more airships together rather than just doing uh, air raids. You know, one one or two ships at a time. They do they 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 go to destroy the Americans systematically. But the Americans essentially ignore that. I mean, they they do their best to fight against it, but but specifically they go for the heart of the matter and they go to the the source of power for the Han Dynasty. By which I I don't mean some metaphysical source of power. I mean the, the power stations that, that actually power the cities of, of the, the, the main centers of industry and certain, certainly military in the Han Dynasty. Because the Americans have banded together, they're able to attack the Han Dynasty from all different angles in concert. That deals a pretty serious blow to them. And then finally, the Americans develop what they call swoopers, which are basically one-man fighters. They don't have many of them, but they're one-man flying machines based on jumper and floater technology, but but sh- better shielded. And they can fly those around and attack these, these great airships with one-man fighters, hoping to, to cause enough damage to bring them down. And that's the progression of the story. It, it, it starts from from tiny, hopeless, ragtag band of rebels to, of course, bringing down an entire empire. It's a pretty classic tale. Probably didn't start with Tony Rogers in 2419. Probably didn't, certainly didn't finish with Tony Rogers in Armageddon 2419. But it's a good story, and it's a good flow of storytelling to keep in mind. 
and it, it's something that you can structure an adventure around pretty easily as long as you keep in mind that the 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 devil is in the detail how do the rebels bring down the big monolithic em empire well they do it because they get more story time dedicated to their activity than the big monolithic han dynasty this kind of sounds like a familiar thing to me after return of the jedi many people always had that question in their mind well okay so the rebel the rebel forces defeated this particular death star in this particular solar system but this is an empire it stretches across the entire galaxy how how is it that 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 brought an end to the entire empire surely there are other planets around that didn't get word that the empire had died and presumably i guess now that we're in 2019 presumably it didn't because that's why I, i'm assuming that's why the first order exists in the sequels to the star wars movies if you acknowledge the sequels to the star wars movies and certainly in in the lord of the rings it was noted that after sauron was defeated over way over there in mordor there were other problems still around even in the shire that had to be defeated upon return but to the to your players, if you're running an RPG, or to your readers, if you're writing a story, it just doesn't matter. The investment is in the detail. The investment is in the people working to bring down the big, great threat. And as long as the, the figurehead of the threat is brought down, then victory has been achieved. Whether that's realistic or not doesn't really matter. The point is, victory's been achieved. If you want to add realism, then specify that there are other bands working in concert with with this group of heroes this is happening all over the place at the same time with other people with other adventurers doing the same kind of of, of tasks have them interact have them coordinate a little bit it's a really good read i highly recommend checking it out if you're into science fiction at all this is the the, the groundwork for a lot of modern sci-fi so it's it's worth looking at for that alone. I think that's about everything I have to say about Armageddon 2419 and the Air Lords of Han. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.